great. We will be reading several passages from the book of Habakkuk. Uh, first, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. And then verses 12 through 13. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes then to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? It's from chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Okay, chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Through the, uh, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Good morning, everyone. So before I get started today, I have a special announcement for the teens. So last Sunday afternoon, the teens made a deal with Les. But Les and I had our dates wrong. So Les is not preaching this week. He's preaching next week. And he still plans to keep his end of the deal with you guys. And he still expects you to keep your end of the deal with him. But it will happen next week instead of this week, OK? If that makes no sense to you, don't worry about it. It's, it's for the teens. But for everyone else, this week in our journey through the Bible, we have been looking at more prophets. And the prophets were God's messengers to deliver his word to his people. And one of the prophets we looked at this week was Habakkuk. And we just had selected readings from the book of Habakkuk, but really we're going to be talking about the whole book today. We just sort of skipped around in the readings to give us a picture of what the book is because three chapters is a long reading to do. So Habakkuk, I think, is one of the prophets who a lot of people have probably never heard of before. And yet at the same time, his message is probably easier for us to resonate with than many of the prophets in the Bible because his prophecy deals with big questions of life that are the same questions that we ask today. 
So things like, where is God when everything is going wrong in life? Or if God is really just, why does he let so much evil happen in the world? Or what do we do with all the evil and injustice that we face every single day in life? And the book of Habakkuk was written 2,500 years ago, and yet the questions it deals with, they're the exact same questions that are still plaguing people today. And through this series of back and forth conversations that he has with God, Habakkuk learns the answers to these questions, kind of. He kind of gets an answer, but kind of doesn't. And so we're going to look at the book of Habakkuk today and see what it has to teach us about these questions in our own lives. And what we're going to see is that faith in God lets us live with hope and joy. Faith in God lets us live with hope and joy. We're going to look at when times are hard, when times get harder, and then hope in hard times. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word, even though it was written so long ago, it deals with things that are so vital and important to our lives today. And God, I pray that as we look at your word today, that you would speak to us, that you would show us who you are, help us to know you more deeply, draw us to yourself, give us a love for you and a desire to know you more and live our lives in line with who you are and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So first off, when times are hard, Habakkuk, he lived in a difficult time. So his nation, I mentioned last week, the nation of Israel split in two. The northern nation was Israel. Southern nation is Judah. In Habakkuk's time, Israel had been carried away into captivity by a foreign nation. And Judah was still supposed to be God's chosen people, but they kept turning away from God and worshiping idols instead. And I know in our world, we're like, what's the big deal? Let them worship who they want to worship. Everyone has a right to choose freedom of religion, all this stuff. But the reality is, as we discussed a couple weeks ago, how we live is shaped by what we worship. How we live is shaped by what we worship. And so because the people of Israel were turning from God to worship these idols, it was leading them to commit acts of violence, including but not limited to child sacrifice. It was leading them to participate in religious prostitution, and prostitution always leads to vulnerable vulnerable people being exploited. And because of this false worship, it was creating a society where everyone was trying to get ahead by taking advantage of others. The more the nation of Judah slash Israel turned from God, the worse and worse of a place their country was to live in. And Habakkuk, looks around at everything that's going chaotic and wrong in his society. And as he looks around, he he realizes that what's happening in the real world right now doesn't line up with what he expects to be happening when he reads the Bible. So he looks at a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18. It says, God executes justice for the fatherless and widow. And then Habakkuk looks around at his society and he's like, everyone is ripping the fatherless and the widow off and no one's doing anything about it. God, if you're a God who executes justice for the fatherless and widow, why is our society so unjust? Or he looks at Deuteronomy 28. It says, God will destroy Israel for their wickedness if they don't obey him but Israel is being wicked and they're not being destroyed. And to clarify, Habakkuk doesn't want his nation to be destroyed, but he has a genuine question. Like, God, if this is, if this is who you really are and that's how you rule the world, why aren't you doing anything right now 
when everyone is doing things that you say you hate and you say you're gonna stop. If you're really so passionate about justice, why don't you step in to protect the people who are being treated unjustly? And can anyone here relate to how Habakkuk feels in that moment? Maybe we read Ezekiel chapter 34, 26. It says, God will send showers of blessings. And we're like, oh really God, you're sending showers of blessings on my life. Why is my job in danger? Why has COVID messed up the economy to the extent that I don't know whether my job will still exist two months from now? And I don't know how I'm gonna put food on the table. I don't know how I'm gonna keep a roof over the head of my family. If this is who you are, where are the showers of blessings? Or maybe you read something like Exodus 15, 26. It says, I, the Lord, am your healer. And it's like, well, God, have you heard of this thing called COVID? It's everywhere. If you're the healer, why haven't you healed it? Or maybe for you in this season, it's something like cancer for you or a loved one. And it's just dragging on. And it's like, God, if you're the healer, why haven't you healed it? And these are like two examples. We could go all day long listing things where what we read in the Bible doesn't feel like it matches our lived experience. We have an expectation of who we think God is and what he's going to do. And we feel like our day-to-day lives don't line up with that. It's a common enough experience that, that I would guess anyone who's ever tried to read the Bible and take it seriously as God's word has faced this gap between what we expect and what we experience. Because so often what we experience and see in our lives feels like it just doesn't line up with what we read in the Bible about what God says he's going to do and how he works in the world. And so when you face those moments, not if, when, because it happens to all of us, when you face those moments, what do you do with them? I'll tell you for, for a long time, my default reaction, which I think is very, very common among many Christians I would see the situation in life that would have me disturbed or upset or sad. And I would say to myself, all right, Philippians 4.4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. So I just need to find a way to be happy in the midst of this. And then I would try to make myself be happy. Has anyone ever tried that? How did it work for you? It doesn't work, at least not in my experience, right? And you know why it doesn't work? Because when we just try to force ourselves to rejoice in those difficult situations, we typically do it by ignoring the situation rather than engaging the situation. In order to to force ourselves to rejoice, we sort of have to live in this state of denial where we pretend that whatever's wrong isn't really wrong, but no matter how hard we try to force ourselves to rejoice, there's still just this underlying something that's not right. And we can feel it, right? Like maybe our muscles get tense We're like, have a smile on the outside, but there's just like this, our back is really tight and we don't know why. Or or maybe we just get restless and can't sit still and focus on something for any prolonged period of time. We, We may not realize what's causing it, but we can feel it in our bodies if we're paying attention. And all our best efforts to make ourselves feel happy by just ignoring what's going on, they don't work. And here's why, because when we do this, we don't aim for joy by engaging with the situation and seeing God at work in the midst of this difficult situation. We do it by pretending the situation isn't real or by pretending it's not as bad as it seems. We're trying to avoid the truth rather than engage the truth. And the reality is, yes, Paul does tell us, rejoice in all situations, rejoice in the Lord always. But we don't get that joy in tough times by avoiding the difficult situation. We get there as we engage 
with those difficult situations. In Habakkuk, he shows us another better way to respond when we reach these moments where what we see of God and his promises in the Bible just doesn't feel like it lines up with our day-to-day life. And you know what Habakkuk does? He complains to God. Habakkuk complains to God. And I realize if you grew up in a church background like mine, you're stepping back right now because you're waiting for lightning to strike down the preacher by saying that that's a good idea to complain to God, right? But I'm only saying this is a good idea because the Bible says it's a good idea. If you read through the book of Psalms, so many of the Psalms are just David and the other writers of the Psalms complaining to God about things that aren't going right in life. And right here, Habakkuk, he looks at the violence and injustice going on in his land and he complains. And his complaints, they are specific and they are intense. Look at chapter one, verse two. God, I'm crying out to you for help and you are ignoring me. And then later on the verse, you won't save. Would you ever feel comfortable saying that to God? (laughs) You won't save. It's like the opposite of everything the Bible says about him, right? And then he doesn't stop there. He goes on to verse three. He, he says, you're sitting back watching everyone do these wrong things and you're doing nothing. And then verse four, you're letting justice be perverted. He comes in with these specific, intense accusations against God and he just complains to God. Would any of you ever feel comfortable saying anything like this to God? It just feels too raw, right? It feels like it crosses this line that the Bible tells us not to cross or else we're going to be in trouble. And yet, not only does Habakkuk make these exact complaints, but God has them recorded for us as an example of how to engage with him in hard times. And do you see why God approves of this? God approves of this because Habakkuk isn't just coming with selfish complaints. He's trying, he's trying to read the Bible and he's trying to align the way that he sees the world with the way that God sees the world. And he is looking at the world and it's just not lining up, but he's passionate for the things that God is passionate for. And he wants to see God's ways happen in the world. He's taking God seriously. And as he tries to take God seriously, things just aren't adding up. He's looking around at the world and saying, God, I'm, I know you're passionate about justice and everyone's rebelling against you. Everyone's acting unjustly and you're just letting them get away with it. It's not that I'm selfishly wanting this. I want what you want, but it feels like maybe you don't even want what you want. And let me ask you again, when you face these situations in life, what do you do? I just shared with you my, my long time go-to response of just trying to force myself to be happy. And I think probably many of us can relate to that. But there may be others who see this discrepancy and we just sort of assume, you know, if that's the case, God must not be real. Or maybe he is real, but he doesn't care. Maybe he's just not gonna work in the circumstances of my life or my world. Maybe you listened to me sharing earlier about how I try to force myself to be happy and you thought that's ridiculous, Eric. And the reason you thought that's ridiculous is because this is your response. You see the apparent gaps between how things should be if God is real or if God really cares and how they are. And you think, well, that settles it. it. If things are this way, God can't be real. God can't care. And just as trying to force ourselves to be happy is not the appropriate response by ignoring hard times, this approach also doesn't work if we want to live a life that's following and honoring God. And again, we see Habakkuk's response contrast to this one. He doesn't try to force himself to be happy, but he also doesn't check out on God. 
he brings his complaint to God. And again, I realize complaining to God probably doesn't feel like something that someone with faith should be doing, right? If we have faith, shouldn't we just trust him? Shouldn't we just be okay with it? But the reality is all of us have questions and confusion and doubts all the time. And we're all doing something with them. How often do you take your questions and complaints and doubts and complain about them to everyone in life except God? Ever done that? We feel like maybe it's unchristian to complain to God, so we don't do that, but we still complain. We feel like maybe complaining to God won't accomplish anything, so we don't bother trying, but then we complain to other people about God. And what are we doing when we do that? We're trying to find someone who can empathize with us and sympathize with us and and take our side because somewhere deep down, there's just a part of us that believes that God won't. And so we bring our complaints to everyone else except God. And actually that response, the response of complaining to everyone except God, that's what it looks like to not have faith. Or maybe we don't complain to others, but it's because we're trying to just ignore these questions and doubts. Like my go-to response, we just want to force ourselves to be happy. We pretend that these issues aren't there. But again, what are we doing by avoiding these questions? Why are we avoiding these questions? It's because somewhere deep down, there's a part of us that's actually afraid that there's not a good answer for them. And if we face them, we're going to come face to face with the reality that, that the whole foundation we thought we were building our lives on isn't strong enough to hold us. We don't believe there's any way that God could really be good given the circumstances we're facing. And so we just don't ask him the questions. And again, ignoring the questions, avoiding the questions rather than bringing them to God is what it looks like to not have faith in the midst of these circumstances in our lives. But God invites us to bring our complaints to him because he is active in our lives, and he is involved in our lives, and he is working in our lives, and he wants us to see it. See, when we complain to God, and we ask the questions to God, and we express our doubts to him about things that seem wrong or unfair in life, what we're doing is we're showing confidence that God should and does have answers to all of our questions. Complaining to God shows a confidence that God should and does have answers to all the problems in life that we can't solve. The reality is you can't complain to God like Habakkuk does unless you have faith. And so that's what Habakkuk is doing. He's taking his complaint to God rather than checking out, rather than trying to ignore the situation, rather than just trying to force himself to be happy. He's saying, God, this doesn't make sense to me, but I trust that you have the answers. And God records Habakkuk's response as an example for us for how to respond to these times in our lives today. And so it's good to complain to God when the things that we're seeing in life don't line up with what we think we should be expecting from God and when things in life don't feel like they match what the Bible says. But that doesn't mean that when we complain to God, things are just automatically going to get better and easier. Because Habakkuk complains to God and God tells him, guess what? Things are going to get worse. So let's look at when times get harder. So we've just seen the book of Habakkuk. It starts with Habakkuk praying and complaining to God. And the rest of this book is this back and forth conversation between Habakkuk and God. So Habakkuk prays to God, complaining. God answers him. Habakkuk complains again. God answers again. And then Habakkuk closes with this prayer of submission and praise. 
And so far, we've only looked at that first prayer. Habakkuk comes and he's like, God, there's violence and evil in the land. You said if that happened, you were going to do something about it, but nothing is happening. So why not? And in God's first response, he gives Habakkuk basically the last response Habakkuk ever expected. God comes in and he says, don't worry, I am doing something about it. You've heard of Babylon, right? Like this foreign nation that's sort of conquering the world right now. Well, I'm going to bring them through and wipe out your nation and bring you guys into captivity. I'm going to make sure that everyone who's doing evil in your land pays for it. Now, if you prayed a prayer like Habakkuk's to God and God gave you that answer, how would you feel? I mean, it, it kind of feels like praying like, hey God, I pray that you would heal COVID. And he's like, all right, here's what's going to happen. World War III. Everyone's going to be pushed into tight quarters. You're going to get herd immunity. COVID's gone forever. Would you be happy with that? Of course not, because yeah, it fixes this problem, but it makes everything in life so much worse. And yet, how often do we face situations like this in life? We pray for God to make our boss nicer, less mean, and our boss leaves and the new boss is just meaner. Or we pray for God to open up travel so that we can go back to our country of where we grew up and visit our family. And rather than getting rid of quarantines, he just bans travel to that country completely. And I know compared to Habakkuk getting his nation wiped out, these things might feel trivial, but they're, they're real situations that we face in day-to-day -day life. And when we're going through them, they feel huge to us. And so what do you do in those situations? I mean, we've already looked at a couple wrong responses we take when we see these gaps between what we expect in life and the reality wrongly ignoring the problem and just trying to make ourselves feel happy, wrongly assuming God isn't real or God doesn't care. But what if we look at those gaps between how we expect things to be and how they are, and we have a proper response. We, we bring them to God. We complain to God like Habakkuk does, and things still don't get better. What then, right? I think generally there are a few go-to responses that are just natural human responses, default responses that we turn to when we cry out to God and things still don't seem to get better. The first is to just shut down our hearts. We don't want to deal with the scary implications of what this situation could mean, so we just try to stop feeling. And we do this by trying to fill up our lives with things like busyness or entertainment or work or alcohol, really anything that can distract us from having to pay attention to what's happening in life. And when we try to shut down our hearts, it leads to addictions. The second response is to grasp for control. We look at our circumstances in life and we think, man, God's not going to do anything about this, so I have to take matters into my own hands. And so we, we reach out and try and do whatever we can to make things better. If someone's not doing what they want and they're in our way, we're either going to manipulate them into doing what we want or we're going to get them out of the way. And again, grasping for control typically makes things far worse, not better. It typically leads to extreme stress and exhaustion. And then the third thing, the third go-to response, cynicism and or bitterness. Basically giving up hope that God could be working for good in our circumstances. We believe the lie that death, not life, has the last word in this and every circumstance. We lose sight of the fact that our lives are part of God's bigger story 
and instead become angry at God for designing our lives so badly? Can you relate to any or all of these responses? And here's the problem with all of these responses. They carry this underlying belief that God isn't really involved in the details of our circumstances and that we're not really living in his story. They all fail to see that God has a good plan for us even in the midst of what we're going through right now. With each of these wrong responses, we, we let our immediate circumstances convince us that things will always be this bad. There's no way God could work through this for our good. And if things are moving downward now, then they're obviously going to just keep moving downward forever. And if we cling to these ways of seeing the world and cling to these ways of responding when things don't go right, we're going to end up stressed and anxious. We're going to end up bitter and angry. We're going to end up exhausted and burned out. And we're going to end up addicted by our distractions of choice. So let me ask you, is that how you want to live life? stressed and anxious, bitter and angry, exhausted and burned out, and an addict. I hope not. But the good news is that there's a better way. And Habakkuk models this better way for us in his second prayer. He doesn't shut down his heart. He doesn't lash out and grasp for control. He doesn't give in to cynicism and bitterness. You know what he does? He keeps complaining to God. He just keeps complaining. Isn't that great? He's like, God, you're so holy that you can't look at evil and yet you're going to sit back and do nothing when people even worse than we are come in and wipe us out? Like, they're worse than we are. How can you do this? This isn't justice. This is just taking an unjust situation and making it even worse. I grew up in church my whole life from when I was younger than this guy. And I grew up in Sunday school for my entire childhood. I was taught Bible stories all over. And I was always, I was never taught to pray this way. The way that I was taught to pray is you pray for what you want. And then at your end of your prayer, you sort of give God an out by saying, if it's your will, I pray for this person's cancer to get better. If it's your will. And if it doesn't happen, then you just sort of have to accept it and be okay with that. And that's, that's all there is to it. That's how I was taught to pray. And let me say, yes, it is very important to pray according to God's will. And yes, it is important to submit ourselves to God's will when he reveals it to us. But Habakkuk doesn't pray like I was taught to pray. He doesn't give God an out, right? He, he comes to God and he's like, God, you've already told us your will in your word. You want justice. And what I'm seeing right now doesn't line up with that. And so he prays to God. He calls, calls God to action. And when God says, here's what I'm doing about it, Habakkuk doesn't just roll over and say, okay, well, if that's your will, I'm okay with it. No, he comes back to God and he's like, no way, you can't do that. He's like, God, that's not okay. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait until you give me a response and show me how you can possibly do this and be okay. And if you've been raised in a background like mine, I just find something so liberating about Habakkuk's response. Does anyone else feel that way? It's just like, okay. We can keep pressing him. We can keep complaining to God. God isn't afraid of us praying prayers like this. He's not trying to keep us at arm's length. He loves it. He loves it when we bring the gritty details and struggles of our day-to-day -day lives with him in prayer. This response, it's so much better than our three defaults because Habakkuk chooses to keep engaging with God. He, he holds on to his belief 
that he's living in God's story. And because he's still living in God's story, he keeps engaging with God in the various situations that face him. He doesn't give up. He doesn't get bitter. He doesn't say, God messed up too bad. Now it's my turn to fix things. He just keeps trusting. He keeps holding up to God the picture that God himself has given to us in the Bible and saying, why am I not seeing this? And God isn't afraid of his questions. Do you believe that in your life, that God's not afraid of your questions? God's not afraid of your doubts? God's not afraid of your complaints? Because it's true. And once we understand that, it's going to transform our lives. God is not afraid of your questions. Look how he responds to Habakkuk here. God doesn't run away from Habakkuk. God doesn't get angry at Habakkuk for asking these questions. God keeps responding. God keeps engaging with Habakkuk and drawing him deeper and deeper into God's story, not just once, but multiple times. And that is how Habakkuk is able to come through this story to a place of hope and joy. So let's wrap up by looking at hope in hard times. Because that's an important question. How can Habakkuk have hope in hard times? Well, let's start the answer to that question by looking at God's second response to Habakkuk. And his second response has two key parts that are really essential for us to understand if we're going to see how Habakkuk gets to the place he gets to at the end of this book. And the first thing is in chapter 2, verse 4, God tells Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by his faith. He's essentially saying to Habakkuk, I know you can't see everything I'm doing right now, but if you want to be on my side, if you want to be one of my people, you need to trust me. Your perspective is too small to see and understand everything I'm doing in the world right now, but I can see the big picture. And so even when you can't see how I'm going to bring about justice in the big picture, trust that I will. Hold on to what you know of my character. Believe that I am good and do good. And again, this isn't like some blind faith. It's based on all that God has done before, how he's proven himself again and again to be faithful and just. God says, trust in that and keep trusting even when you can't see it. And then the second thing God tells Habakkuk is don't worry. Yes, I'm using the Babylonians to bring judgment on you, but the story doesn't end with Babylon being exalted. The story ends with God being exalted. Babylon may seem like the most powerful nation on earth right now, like no one could ever stop them, but they will fall. They will face justice too, just like Israel. I know what I'm doing. I'm in control. And so God says, trust me and don't worry, I'm going to make things right. And yet, despite the fact that God promises to make everything right in the end, on one level, like that doesn't really help Habakkuk right now because his nation is still going to get wiped out. His friends and family are still going to get slaughtered and carried away into exile. So how is he going to endure in this hard time, right? And the answer is by listening to what God says to him in chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by his faith. Habakkuk needs faith. He needs to obey God's call to trust in him. And on one level, Habakkuk has already been modeling faith for us all along by bringing his complaints to God. He's showing the response of faith. But on another level, there's this transition inside Habakkuk as we go throughout the book that's astounding. Because he starts out the book just complaining to God with doubts and questions and complaints about everything that's wrong in the world. And he keeps engaging when things seem to be getting worse. And look where he ends up at the end of the book because of this response. 
he has this prayer at the end of chapter three that shows a totally different perspective. It's in chapter three, verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So I know we don't live in an agrarian society. A lot of that might not mean much to us. I've rewritten this in terms that might make more sense to us today to give us a picture of the type of thing that he's praying. Though my company goes bankrupt and I can't pay my rent, though my investments plummet in value and all my retirement funds dry up, Though the grocery store shelves are empty and I don't know how I'm going to feed my family. Though COVID is still spreading and I don't know how I'm going to keep my family safe, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. Habakkuk's prayer has transformed from God, there's so much wrong in the world, why aren't you fixing it? To no matter how much goes wrong in the world, I'm going to rejoice in God, my strength. He moves from saying God sits by and does nothing in the face of evil to not only is God involved and engaged, but God actually empowers me to do something powerful and amazing in the world as well. He, he moves from complaining to praise. And how does this transformation happen? Well, it's because he experiences a resurrection of perspective. And I know that might seem like a weird term. I'll explain it in a minute. Here's what I mean. The, the life of following God and growing as a Christian, it's shaped like a J. You can sort of see a J shape there, where it starts downward and then goes upward. We can call it a J curve, like J for Jesus, because he's the ultimate model of this. If you think of the life of Jesus, he leaves heaven, comes to earth. That's a downward motion. And then on earth, he gets murdered. That's further downward. But that's not the end of the story, because God raises him up, back to life. And then God exalts him to heaven and seats him at his right hand. And God has given him the name above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. So if you compare where Jesus starts to where he ends, it's, it's an upward motion, but it doesn't happen just in a straight line. It happens by going down into death and then experiencing a resurrection that leaves him more exalted in the end than he was when he started. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay, so that pattern of death, then resurrection, is the pattern of the Christian life. It's how we grow. And it's the pattern for Habakkuk's growth in today's passage as well. And as a quick but vitally important side note right here, Jesus' death and resurrection is the ultimate answer to the questions of how God can be just while allowing injustice in the world. Because if God can bring justice to the cross, if God can bring justice to the event where sinful humanity murders their perfect creator, then he can bring justice to anything you're facing in life right now. The cross is God's once for all promise that all the injustice in the world will be made right in the end. It may not happen in my lifetime or your lifetime, but it will be made right in the end. And the J-curve says that just as Jesus experienced this death, then resurrection, Christians grow through the experience of dying and rising. 
So the pattern of growth is I begin to suffer and experience some type of death in my life, often metaphorical, like dying to myself, dying to my desires and my wishes in life. And our natural instinct when that happens is to get out, avoid the suffering at all costs. But what we see here is we resist that natural desire. Instead, we receive that suffering, to use Paul's term in Philippians 3.10, as, as an opportunity to share in the suffering of Christ. And it could be big suffering, it could be small suffering, but all suffering in our lives is an invitation from God to join in the suffering of Christ. And when we receive that as a gift from God and an invitation from God, the next step is to pray like crazy because there's nothing we can do to save ourselves right here. And we want to be drawn to God in our suffering. And so we see this in Habakkuk. He experiences this death of confusion and doubt and disillusionment, but he doesn't ignore it. He doesn't try to avoid it. He turns to God in prayer. And in God's stories, death is never the end. Like that's vitally important for us to understand. In God's stories, death is never the end. Just as he raised Jesus from the dead, in God's timing and in God's way, he brings resurrection in our lives as well. The resurrection may come in this lifetime, it may come in eternity, but it will come. And sometimes resurrections mean that our circumstances change, but sometimes they mean that we're in the exact same circumstances, but we have a new perspective that allows us to approach those circumstances differently even though on one level, everything is exactly the same as it's always been. And that's what happens with Habakkuk. For Habakkuk, his resurrection, it's a resurrection of perspective and a resurrection of spirit. At the end of the book, nothing has changed about his circumstances, and yet the way he sees the situation is completely transformed, which means that he's able to look at the exact same circumstances in life, but do it with hope and joy. He lives by faith as he moves down the J, trusting in God's goodness even when he can't see it. And then that faith lets him endure through his trial without jumping out of the J too early. And in the end, because he endures, because he holds onto his faith through that death of experiencing confusion and doubt and disillusionment, God gives him this resurrection perspective of hope and joy where he's finally able to have a better perspective on how can God be good even though everything is going wrong. His faith allows him to live with hope and joy. And church, we live in a broken world just like Habakkuk, where every day we're surrounded by things that don't seem to align with who God is, that don't seem to align with what we'd expect of him. And when we realize that, it's disorienting and confusing and scary, and it can feel like a type of death. And our natural response is to hit the eject button and run away and avoid that suffering and that death as as fast as we can. But Habakkuk tells us, don't do that. Accept this invitation from God to join in the sufferings of Christ. Like Habakkuk, turn your questions and complaints into prayer. Bring them all to God. Hold on to faith as you trust God through the confusion and pain. And like Habakkuk, if you live by your faith, God will bring resurrections in your life. I can't promise you what those will look like. I can't promise you what timing that will happen. And that's part of the scary thing about this is that the resurrection timing and method and mode is completely in God's hands. But it always comes because in God's stories, they never end with death. They always end in resurrection. We see it with Jesus. We see it with Habakkuk. And it's true in our lives as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for Habakkuk and the courage that he had to just come to you with his difficulties and his struggles 
to come to you and not run away, to come to you and not try and ignore or avoid his suffering. I pray, God, that you would forgive us for the times that we've failed to do that. Forgive us for the times that we've chosen to just shut down our hearts when things don't go right. Forgive us for the times we've grasped for control. Forgive us for the times we've turned to cynicism and bitterness rather than trusting you. And God, give us hearts that have a perspective to see everything happening in our lives as part of your story. Give us hearts that run to you in prayer when we see suffering coming in our lives so that we can hold on to faith and come through that death into a resurrection so that our disillusionment can be turned to hope and joy through your work in our lives. God, we trust you, but we need to trust you more. So I pray that you would fill us with faith. In Jesus' name, amen.